this is going to work is uh, you're going to have the chance to ask questions via, via text message. And so the, the number is there up on the screen. If you um, go, well, I don't really have a phone that I could send a text message, then borrow one from your mom or your grandkids. And uh, they can help you do that. And so we'd love to take your questions. A bunch of you have already been sending them in. And uh, it's going to be myself and Josh Watt and Seth Trout who are going to be answering them in just a moment. So we're going to just leave this up here in case you uh, want to get the number, uh, want to ask questions, uh, that sort of a thing. So if this is your first time, uh, you're at Redemption Gateway, which is one of 10 congregations that are part of the Redemption Church family. All of us are united in our love for Jesus. And I think you've already uh, gotten a little bit of a taste of that. Uh, grab the program that you got. Hopefully somebody gave Gave you one of these when you came in and as you open that up you'll see a number of things in there at the bottom is this connection card and we'd love you to fill out as much of that connection card as you are able to um, and then just drop it into the giving boxes those gray mailboxes that are there back by the door if you have some prayer requests or uh, anything that you would just like us to know about you can write that on the back of your card we'd love to do that and uh, I'll just draw your attention to the the news and event section up at the top of the program in blue there is start here and that's really your best next step if you're new to our church or trying to take a step to get more involved or connected uh, start here is a great opportunity also lots of cool classes coming up this summer so uh, be sure to check that out all right well uh, that's going to lead us really into our time here and to uh, get the the tone set uh, Jay Power from our scripture reading team is going to read from 1 Corinthians 15. So if you have a Bible, please stand and open it to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 5. That's on page 961 if you have one of the black hardcover Bibles. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. May this word of the Lord unite us as a church and make us bold as missionaries. Amen. Thanks, Jay. You may be seated. That was brief. Hey, guys. Welcome up. Good to see you. So, uh, Everybody, this is uh, Josh Watt. I think a lot of you know him. He leads our student ministry. Yeah, we've got a few, few Josh Watt fans out there. That's pretty fun. Um, that's yours. That's mine. Um, Josh, you guys recently did uh, a thing in student ministry, Students Own the Ministry, yep. where students did the music, students did the teaching, students did all the small group leadership. So the question I had for you to start is, do you think you still have a job, or were there some students that were like ready to take your spot? So I was out of town and my wife texted me and said, just so you know, nobody cared or noticed that you <laughs> or Reese were gone. So we're not that big a deal. <laughs> Great. That's cool. And then this is Seth Trout. And Seth is an associate pastor of adult ministry here for us. And uh, you see him preach from time to time. And he recently graduated from Phoenix Seminary with the Masters in Divinity, which is pretty cool. So yeah. And uh, had a big oral exam a few months ago, and so I'm curious, Seth, of, of all the questions you prepared for that oral exam, is there one that you think, I hope no one is thinking about asking that question because it's just so irrelevant and stupid. <laughs> yeah, what? a lot of them probably. So. <laughs> any in, in particular? Put uh, you on the spot. Uh, not any in particular, but there, there's just a lot that you have to learn in seminary that I feel like more about pastors arguing with pastors than about really kind of helping people actually follow Jesus. So yeah. I think that some of that, there's a time and a place for that, but I think 
where the rubber meets the road and real people trying to follow Jesus is generally more important than yeah. pastors arguing with each other. So. Yeah. Well, I think today, hopefully, it should be a lot of rubber meets the road. Um, before we get into the questions, I want to just set the stage with uh, really uh, three things I want to make sure we understand, and then one th- kind of request in particular. So the, the first thing to understand, and Jay just read this in 1 Corinthians 15, is that 1 Corinthians 15 tells us what is of first importance. Um, it, if, you, if you look in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, the Apostle Paul writes, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That means that there are some things that are more important than other things. All the Bible is true, but not every single part is equally important, is what Paul's saying. And he says, here's the most important thing, is that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried and that he was raised. And we've just sung about that, we've taken communion about that, we've celebrated that. And uh, I I just want to make sure we understand that because a number of the questions that come in may not be related to that, which means they're not as important. It doesn't mean they're unimportant. You get that? Just just the, the more connected it is to the gospel, the more important it is, the more essential it is, the more kind of closed-handed we hold it, and the, the, the less connected to the gospel it is, the, the more we're free to kind of go, well, I, I don't know, and I'm not sure exactly how important it, it will be necessarily. So that's the first thing. The gospel is most important. Everything else is important in its relationship to that. Second thing is we grow through tension, Right? Right? We grow through tension, and tension is uncomfortable, and tension is, I don't know how I feel about that, but we actually grow through tension. We rarely grow when things are just easy and simple and the same as it's always been. And so there may be questions today that make you feel, ugh, tension. There may be answers given today that make you go, ugh, I didn't really like that answer. Or I don't know how, if I would answer it that way, or if I would wrestle with it the same way, or those sorts of things. And that is okay. We grow through that tension, and so embrace that tension. Uh, The third thing is let this be the beginning of the conversation, not the end, right? So we have a very limited amount of time to be able to answer any one question. And so um, if there's a question that you you ask or you just hear and you hear our response, you go, ah, gosh, that kind of bugged me. Let it begin the conversation. We'll all be available after the service if you want to talk more, if you want to email us. All of our email addresses are available. If you just go on our website, we're not hiding from anybody. So if you have more things that you want to follow up on or discuss, we would love to be able to do that with you. So let us know that. Now here's the request, all right? Can I make a request? Give us some grace, all right? We don't know what questions are coming. We haven't pre, like, this isn't phony. Like, we really don't know what's coming in. And um, we're going to do our best to lean on the scriptures and to be filled with the spirit here. But just give us some grace and, uh, and let's have some fun with it. All right? We ready? Yep. Great. <laughs> Seth, why don't, you pray, why don't you pray for us? That'd be a good way to start. <laughs> Father, thank you for being in this room with us. Thank you for giving us mm-hmm. the scriptures. Thank you for the way that you form us over time. I pray if there's answers in Josh, Luke, and I's head that you'll be faithful to bring them out. And I pray that uh, uh, we'd all be sharpened as a result of being here. And uh, that as Luke said, that we'd be gracious with ourselves and that this would start a lot of conversations and not uh, frustrate people who disagree with some of the answers that come out. Uh, Thank you for your gospel. That is a first importance, that we can be certain of that and secure in that. And I pray that we can just know you more clearly as a result of having some of these questions answered. Mm -hmm. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. 
First question is, what is the role of elder at Redemption Gateway? Should an elder be paid staff or be a lay people? Um, since I'm the only elder on the stage, I'll answer that question. Um, so the role of elder at Redemption Gateway is to be an overseer. Uh, the, there's some passages that describe the role and the qualities of elders. First um, Timothy 3 is one, Titus 1 is another. Uh, there's a passage we'll study here in a few months in Acts chapter 20 that describes the role of elders being those who shepherd the flock. Um, and protect the church from error and those sorts of things. Um, it's interesting in the, in the scriptures, there's a lot that really is focused on the character and the kind of core capabilities of an elder. There's very little that describes exactly how a group of elders in any local congregation should work because the, that's gonna vary a lot based on the cultural situation and the cultural context and the needs and the size and all that sort of stuff. So at Redemption Gateway, the role of elder is uh, really to provide big picture uh, leadership and direction to the church. Um, the, the local elders here at Gateway, um, they set our budget, they approve um, kind of uh, not, not specific hires on the staff, but um, the kind of personnel slots and positions for, for staff. Um, and so it, it's increasingly becoming big picture. More and more, our, our staff is doing a lot of the day-to-day -day kind of hands-on um, oversight of ministry, and the elders are doing kind of more big picture, um, holding the, the leadership, and particularly me, accountable, that sort of thing. The second question, should an elder be paid staff or be a layperson? And really, the, the scripture doesn't say that. The whole idea of paid staff is not something that the church on the run in the first century as the Bible was coming together knew about. So um, there's nothing in the Bible that prohibits it, uh, nor is there anything that recommends it. And so right now, um, there's a mixture of staff and non-staff elders on our team. We also have a handful of men that are all non-staff who are currently in the elder candidate process. And at some point over the next year or so, you'll, you'll surely hear more about at least some of those men. So. Next question. What do you say to Christians that say they're inclusive of gay people, but then post on Facebook that they're boycotting a movie or TV show that has a gay character in it? Who, uh, <laughs> I did the last one, I'll do it, but, but you guys are up here. What do you, what do you anyone wanna do it? You want, go ahead, Josh. Oh, uh, you looked like you were ready to say something. You look primed and ready. ready. You had the mic at your mouth. Seth, what do you think? I think. <laughs> Uh, the language is important. What does inclusive of gay people mean? Mm. If that means you love them and you have them in your house and you consider them best friends and people that you love as much as anyone else in this world, yes. If inclusive means your doctrine of the Bible uh, now changes what God has laid down as the morality for sexuality as far as a man and a woman is God's uh, design, then that gets a little... Uh, real problematic. Um, but then post on Facebook that they're boycotting. So the Beauty and the Beast came out and apparently there was some homosexual kind of undertones, which... It was about six-tenths of a second. Yeah, yeah. So that was, that's don't, the most don't, recent... Don't blink. Yeah. You'll miss it. My wife saw it. She didn't think anything of it. Um, yeah, I don't... Get off Facebook. Most of... <laughs> <laughs> I don't, that's, just stop talking on Facebook and that's my gist. It's just love actual people who God has actually put in your life, wherever they are on the spectrum of what they think of Jesus, 
And it's just messy. Jesus was called out by religious people a lot because he was actually involved with real relationships with real people where it's not nice and neat and academic answers that fill every hole. It's just, it's just messy and it should be that way because that's how we grow. So just chill out a little bit. Get off Facebook, most of you probably, and <laughs> just ex- you know, the extend grace. I mean, we're all figuring it out as we go. It's, I just talked with an older couple about parenting and they've got kind of kids in their 20s and their point is, gosh, we screwed up. But God's grace is enough, and you're going to screw up, and God's grace is enough, and we're going to screw up so much. Just extend grace a lot over and over, and this church will be a sweet place. So. Great. Yeah. Amen. That's a good answer. All right, next question. Uh, what is the Holy Spirit? This was probably on your oral exam. So <laughs> That did come up. That did come up in seminary. That's pretty good. It's uh, a good thing. Uh, so the Holy Spirit is one of the three persons of God. He is God and he is not the son and he's not the father. Um, He plays a variety of roles in our lives. Um, He's an intercessor, he's a helper. What's an intercessor? Uh, He uh, intercedes, (laughs) so (laughs) he he stands, so like uh, he stands in the gap so he prays for us on behalf of God the Father. Romans 8, 16 says we don't know what to pray for as we ought, but the Holy Spirit intercedes with us. Mm. And so when we don't know what to pray and all we, have, all we can do is groan, uh, the Spirit translates what we don't have words for to the Father. And so even when, we're not, when we pray and it sounds really dumb to us, the Father hears it translated by the Spirit, mm. so it sounds really good um, or meaningful or accurate or whatever it is. So, so if you're babbling in prayer, you can trust that the Spirit is translating your incomplete thoughts to the Father in a way that makes a lot of sense. Uh, John 14 calls, talks about him as the, the helper or uh, the one who comes alongside. Uh, he's there in creation, Genesis 1. He's uncreated and is eternal. Uh, so there's a lot of adjectives you could throw at him, but it's key that he's a person, that he's God, and that he's present with us, uh, enabling us to fulfill our mission and be obedient in all spheres of life. Amen. Great. Cool. All right, next question. We don't have to clap for everyone, but that was a good answer. I, I, I started it. I appreciate it. So, yeah. <laughs> Man, I'm getting all the church questions, maybe. So to what extent do redemption congregations share revenue? How much is shared with congregations in lower income areas with lower revenues? That's a great question. So redemption is 10 congregations, one church. Um, and that breaks down. This is super detailed, but I'll try to go fast. There currently are five congregations that internally we call supporting congregations and five that are uh, supported. So the supported ones tend to be the newer ones. They're the startups, they're the church plants, uh, that sort of a thing. And the supporting congregations tend to be a little bit more established. And so the, uh, the supporting congregations, uh, we give about each, congreg- each of those congregations gives 10% into a um, community and global and church planting kind of uh, ministry. And then we give each about 11.5% into our central operations, which handles accounting, payroll, uh, HR, uh, websites, um, facilities, a lot of the kind of resources that all the congregations uh, share. So that's how that works, which actually, as you think about multi-location congregations, that's actually a very, very low percentage and all money we would have to be spending just to do it ourselves anyway. So it's overall a pretty good thing. Um, 
and so all of that uh, money goes into kind of a, a pool that the executive leadership team of Redemption figures out how much each of those supported congregations needs in order to, to help that congregation uh, thrive and eventually get to a point of self-sufficiency financially. Um, and it really is need-based. So the congregation in Scottsdale gets less than the congregation in West Mesa for lots of obvious reasons. Um, but our hope is that each congregation eventually can get to the point where the people in that church have the dignity of really fully funding and supporting their local ministry. So thanks for asking that. You want to add anything? Is this on? Yeah. yeah. Add anything about just central savings and the fact that churches can use that for leveraging and kind of new builds. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a huge blessing of being part of Redemption related to that, where particularly because Redemption Gilbert, just to be brass tacks honest, saved a ton of money over the years that um, every other congregation has had the opportunity to add to, but also be able to draw from. So uh, we were able to get in this building because we were able to take an interest-free loan from Redemption Gilbert and uh, really all that Redemption Gilbert money, they let go of it and it just became redemption money. And so we all got to, we all get to benefit from that. Uh, West Mesa is benefited from that. Scottsdale, us, uh, Tempe, over and over and over. And uh, we can, we now with some of our overages and things have the opportunity to kind of pay into that as well. But um, it's really been a huge asset. So great. Next question. Is there anything in the Bible about cremation after death? What is the church's view on cremation? Hmm. Good question. Seth, Seth go ahead. <laughs> uh, so biblically speaking, uh, there's not a whole lot of commands about how to treat the body after death. And by not a whole lot, I mean, I don't think, can't think of any right now off the top of my head. That was just me hedging my bets a bit. Um, uh, but the, the Christian view is uh, one in which the body will be raised. And so historically, especially in the early church, there's a big distinction between the way that pagans treated dead people and the way that Christians treated dead people, and that Christians buried their dead as a testament to the future bodily resurrection, whereas pagans just burned their dead because they thought nothing happens when you die. And so uh, a number of different theologians have really encouraged Christians to avoid cremation and do physical burial for the sake of witness to the eventual future resurrection. Um, I don't think that's a matter of biblical obedience, but I think that might be a matter of missional intentionality, trying to tell people who aren't Christians, we believe in a physical bodily resurrection at the return of Christ. Um, and you see some of that physical bodily resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15 in the passage that Luke just read from. But I think that's more a matter of witness than it is a matter of obedience. And so uh, if someone got cremated, I wouldn't like that has no, in my view, has no real bearing on their eternal destination. I think that God at the resurrection can put together a burned up body just as well as he can put together a body that got run over by a car or a body that died of natural old age. And so I don't think there's like a real, like a, if you do this, then you're in really bad shape. But I do think there's uh, some level of, to all my non-Christian friends, I might choose not to be cremated so that I can be in, even in my death, the witness to the eventual future bodily resurrection and the new creation that comes with that. Yeah. I'd just add that to the second question, the church doesn't have a view on this in terms of an official, here's Redemption Church's view. Um, but I would say that particularly if, if that was an issue for somebody, particularly for if they said, well, I, I would want to do a burial, but financially it's a hardship or those sorts of things. I, I, this has never happened, but I could even envision our elder and benevolence and some of those things saying, well, 
if that's important to you, then maybe we could help you do that. But at the same time, if you want to cremate somebody for a lot of different reasons, that's a, you know, go for it. Yeah, that's a third level issue, but yeah. I think it's worth wrestling with and not just assuming that you'll do whatever everybody else is doing. Great. All right, next question. With so many people, including Christians, living together today, it makes me wonder whether traditional marriage is truly biblically mandated. You keep moving your head and I keep, this you're good. <laughs> whether traditional marriage is truly biblically mandated or just a cultural tradition. Hmm, good question. Do you want that, Josh, or? <laughs> you don't have to, but. Yeah. Um, it's a great, I'll just chime in yeah. real quick. A, a lot of people want the Bible to say, do not do blank or do it this way in a specific sort of bullet point. Here's the rule that applies directly to your specific circumstance. And the Bible is a story of God's love towards us. Within that story, he set up kind of how he wants us to live. And one of that is a man and a woman should be married. They should withhold sex until they're married. And that's the way they consummate the marriage. Um, but it doesn't say in Proverbs, you shall not live with the person you're going to get married with. So if that's what you're looking for, I guess you could find a loophole to be able to uh, live whatever way you want. Here's the reality, though. I, financially, this makes a lot of sense, living together. You save money. Just practically, if you guys are in love and you're getting married, it seems to make sense. Like, so many common sense things seem to be in favor of just live together. But the Bible, Jesus comes on the scene, and the first thing he says is repent. Hmm. Pensies is the Greek word. It's your thoughts, your, the way you think. Rethink how you do everything, Jesus is saying, including your view of sexuality and relationships and cohabitation and all this. So the reality is the Genesis account sets up a man and a woman being married, living together. That's the norm. Jesus comes on the scene, and his first word is repent. You guys have been messing this up a bunch. Rethink it and rethink it the way I want you to rethink it. You shouldn't live together before marriage. And I get it. That's really hard, and it, it takes faith, but that's how faith works is God calls you to stuff that you don't think makes sense sometimes and seems really hard, but it's the best way to live in obedience to Jesus. So that's yeah. my... So, so that's, that's talking especially about the living together. Will you take kind of the second part of the question um, about is traditional marriage just a cultural tradition or is it actually biblically mandated? Yeah, I think it's a... First, great job, Josh. Good answer. Yeah, I learned something. That's good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I learned something, so... Yeah, so it depends what you mean by traditional marriage. If by traditional marriage you mean, you know, she wears a white dress and you spend $20,000 and walk down an aisle, then, yeah, that's a cultural tradition. That doesn't mean it's wrong, but I think, I think there's a lot of value in, like, having the full done-up traditional wedding ceremony. Uh, so I think I've, I've known some Christians recently who, like, don't even have the full-blown deal, but they meet up with the, their family and take vows of the pastor, and they call it married. So if, if traditional marriage means spending a ton of money on a ceremony and inviting people and having a huge party, then that's a cultural tradition. Um, but if traditional marriage means a man and woman taking vows till death do us part, then that was established in creation and it's rooted in reality, not just in sociology. And so uh, Jesus affirms that and upholds that, all the apostles affirm that and uphold that. And so it's even b before the fall, after the fall, uh, man and woman being given to one another in marriage and the two becoming one flesh. Uh, till death do us part is uh, 
goes way beyond any type of sociology. In the wedding ceremonies I do, I say something along the lines of, some call marriage an, uh, an antiquated institution, and I say it's actually the most antiquated institution. It's the first institution, so um, it's the oldest institution. It's older than any other thing that when God started a society, he decided to make the cornerstone of that a man and woman given to each other in marriage. And so that's God's vision for a society, his vision for male and female, and his vision for marriage is um, much earlier than traditional, yeah. so. Great, thanks. All right, next question. What do you see, good night. <laughs> What do you see as your biggest leadership challenge as our church expands into the new building? Lead pastor? Yeah. <laughs> um, I think the biggest leadership challenge is that there is no uh, growth without change. There's no change without pain. And there's no pain without loss in any area of life. And the reality of um, expanding into a new building means that we're going to just about double our seating capacity, which means there's going to be lots of opportunity and lots of energy toward inviting people and including more people and reaching people who are not currently part of a church at all. And that's just going to mean growth. And the growth is necessarily going to mean things change. And when things change, it will necessarily mean you experience some sort of pain and loss. And so I think that'll be the biggest leadership challenge is just helping shepherd uh, my own heart through the, the kind of grieving that I'll experience as things change, um, shepherding our staff and leadership through those same things and shepherding our congregation through those things. Um, we can get very attached to a lot of things that are really good. And uh, we don't want core biblical convictions to change, but a lot of the way those biblical convictions get expressed are just going to always be changing to the degree that we want to keep reaching people and being connected to the, the culture here in our community. And so um, I think that's probably our biggest leadership challenge. Um, and uh, at least I feel the weight of that a lot. Do you guys have thoughts there? In my first flinch is just when new people come in, like we have, I'm pretty new, at, new here. And one of the things that I've found really refreshing is that being bigger has never been a definition or even a, a, a definition of success or even necessarily an inherent vision, that it's mostly like as we grow, there's like this weight of we have to disciple these people, we have to care for them, we have to get them connected, not just have them in a room on Sundays. And so I think that the harvest is ripe, the workers are few. I think about people stepping up and being developed as leaders. I think about all the more positions for people to volunteer and serve in significant ways. And so hmm. at least in my, my lens, I see the biggest leadership challenge is gonna be multiplying leaders to care for and disciple the new people who come yeah. because them showing up on Sunday morning is not at all the goal. Hmm. The goal is to birth and strengthen fully formed healthy disciples of Jesus. And so that's not really accomplished just on a Sunday morning. And yeah. so I think it's everything that leads to outside of that is going to need to be scaled in a big way. That's great. All right, next question. What exactly constitutes pornography? Um, well, let me, I'll, I'll make a point and then I'll let you guys maybe answer the question. I'm, I'd be curious why that question's being asked. Um, anytime that someone is saying what exactly counts as this, um, it often means that either a person is committing sin that they know they're committing but they want to deny they're committing and so they are trying to rationalize how to 
say, well, I'm not exactly doing it. So that's one thing. Or, in, particularly with this question, it might be a spouse who's hurt by a spouse's sexual sin and is trying to pin them down on that what they're doing actually is wrong because it's pornographic. Um, and so um, what I'll say, and then let you guys jump in and actually answer the question, is anytime we're saying, well, what exactly is the line? We're asking the wrong question. Uh, Hebrews 12 says, throw off every weight in sin that so easily entangles you and run to Jesus. And so the question should never be, well, what exactly, how exactly close can I get to the sin before actually sinning? The question should be, how can I run to Jesus and throw off anything that even smells like sin and is getting in my way? So I, I think that's maybe important to say as a setup to the question, so. Yeah, that's great. Um, I work with high schoolers primarily, and when sexual immorality is brought up in the Bible, the only option given, either in story form with Joseph or in the New Testament and the epistles with kind of commandments on how to live is run or flee, get out of there. Jesus says if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. So a lot of times I've had talks with high school boys and I say, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And I walk out of the room. <laughs> I think Jesus wanted it to lay heavy on us, the reality of there's sin that destroys us. And pornography is destroying us. And it starts sometimes in the early years when we're too dumb to realize what's happening. You need to run. You need to flee. Sexual morality, the word in the New Testament is pornea, pornography. Run from anything that seems like it could be an issue is what Simmons is saying, which I'd agree with. And here's the reality. Um, because this is either a man or a woman asking this. If it's a man, he may be towing the line. If it's a woman, she's hurt and been hurt. Um, we, men are, tr some men are trying to fight this. And we also need some grace because it's a tough battle. Like any of us that have young boys or sons or teenage boys, we just are burdened for them because this is a tough, tough battle. So... There needs to be grace both ways, but for people kind of dabbling, figuring out what pornography is, the Bible only gives you one option, and it's run or chop off whatever it is that's causing you to sin. So that's what I'd say. Next question. With so many marriages under attack, what is the church doing to help strengthen that area? That's a good question. Seth, you lead adult ministry. Um, and you were actually at something kind of related to some of this this week. Why don't you talk about that? Yeah, so first, the admission is probably not enough. I think uh, as a staff, kind of the feeling is both with regards to marriage and parenting, where uh, we, we want to be doing more, we want to do more intentional ways of developing husbands and wives, um, both in, as they love each other and as parents. Um, so we did a marriage series in December, and I think that that kind of really, we knew that there was a need, but I think the, how much attendance came up and like the level of engagement there was during that series really highlighted how much is going on there. Um, we're talking about doing another relationship series coming up after Acts or maybe um, next year. Uh, but there's a variety of uh, events and uh, mentor opportunities that we're pouring into and investing in, but a lot of it is... Uh, I was just at this conference this weekend, and there's so much of marriage that just the reason marriage is under attack is because we're sinners and we're selfish. And we don't want to serve. We want to be served. And so 
a piece of it feels is whenever we preach the gospel and say repent and believe, we're strengthening marriages. And, and I think even as, uh, in more tangible ways beyond that, um, we're not doing as much as we could be or should be, and we hope in the next couple of years to offer more and to do more specific developing in the parents' range of things. But even if you're here right now and you're going, man, that sucks for me right now because my marriage is under attack right now, uh, we as pastors value that and want to make time for you on an individual basis, though in the future we want to have more kind of structured ministry to help support some of that. So, I'd also add that um, we uh, are a church that has a full-time uh, pastor whose focus is biblical counseling and building a team of uh, volunteer leaders who are equipped and capable at doing that as well. And uh, that's a pretty rare thing. There are not many churches and in even larger churches who prioritize counseling to the point of hiring somebody to do it. A lot of times it's like, hey, we don't want to, we don't want to talk to messy people. We got to get them out of here. <laughs> here's, a, here's a number to call. Um, and our number to call is one of our pastors. And, uh, and often uh, we have a number of, of gifted people who have background in helping counseling situations who are part of that team. And if you have a background and, and can and want to help in those areas, uh, make sure you talk to us because um, that's, I think, a key thing. Um, unfortunately, that is often the crisis point of, of marriage stuff, and so there is probably opportunity to grow the preventative marriage ministry. And, and Dale's really good, too. I don't know if you're, some of you might be kind of skeptical about counseling or counselors in general, but I think even the guys on the staff team, like our marriages are better because we're around Dale more mm -hmm. often, and so I think there's a lot to be learned in that area. And so if you kind of have like a lens of skepticism with counselors or counseling, um, I think all three of us would say we've benefited from just the hallway conversations with the counselors on staff. So yep. there's that. Yeah, great. Next question. How do our prayers change the mind of God? Hmm. Good question. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, so Numbers 23:19 says, God is not like a man in that he lies or can change his mind. So in one sense, we see a God who is unchanging, he's uh, infinite, and his mind does not change. In another sense, we see in Exodus 32, Moses prays, and uh, God relents his judgment, and it looks like on the surface he changes his mind. And so, if you just read those two verses by themselves, they're what some people would call a contradiction, <laughs> but I prefer to call them attention, that they're both affirming true things we need to reconcile um, both of those. And so in, in the way that I understand it is um, John Calvin talked about how the Bible and the way that God communicates with us is like baby talk. Like he's a father speaking to children who don't really, can't really understand his mind. So he kind of, like what we have here is goo goo gaga. Um, That's discouraging. Yeah. I, yeah. I yeah. feel like I'm barely <laughs> yeah. understanding this. Yeah. And, and, and so the point being is we, we have a unsearchable, unlimited God, who we, even in eternity, will never fully know, and yet he's delivered to us some hard-to-understand things, but yet nonetheless. So in one sense, 
God in his uh, sovereign will, does, his mind never changes. He knows what's gonna happen, he knows why it's gonna happen, he's ordained all things that come to pass. But in another sense, in like the way he works with humans, he has chosen to work through the freely offered prayers of his people to bring about his will and his kingdom here on earth. And so I think the Numbers 23 passage speaks to the fact that God's in control, he has a plan, it is coming to fruition, nothing happens on accident, but the Exodus 32 passage shows us the way that God has chosen to work through the prayers of his people, and he chooses to interact with us on the basis of who he is as a person, not just on the basis of who he is as a sovereign ruler. So I think both of those intention um, Great. work to do something. Great. I'll add, uh, in the Gospels, Jesus talks about prayer. What dad of you, uh, if your kid asked for an egg, would give him a scorpion? Basically, an earthly sinful dad can give good gifts to their children. How much more will I? And the kind of picture he gives of prayer is of a desperate persistence. Mm. So the prayers that God longs to answer are desperate and persistent. I picture my boys convinced that they have to go to the bathroom and just persistently saying, I need to get out of bed because I have to go to the bathroom. I have to go to the bathroom. I Fine. And God's like that. He wants our heart to be desperately in need of him. And that's the kind of prayer, the, 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 the soil that God works in and wants to uh, answer your prayers in. So that's just one thing I'd add. Great. All right, next question. How do you keep a Christ-centered focus in all of life, mundane tasks, parenting, relationship, parenting relationships, especially when frustration and discouragement cloud your view? Man, that's a great question. Um, man, that's very good. And I love that the person asking this is trying to do it because this, that's really important. We don't believe that, the, that Christ matters just here on Sundays, and so he does matter in all of, all of life. I'll offer a couple things that I try to do, and this is descriptive, not prescriptive. Um, but one is, um, there's a terrific little book that I'm just gonna summarize the whole thing for you by Wayne Grudem called Business for the Glory of God. And his, he looks at business, but his basic point is one of the most neglected ways of glorifying God is by imitating him. And I actually did a message on this a few years ago uh, called The Imitation Game, where we talked about how we imitate God in our daily lives. And so one of the things that makes mundane things feel more special to me is realizing God is uh, imitated. You know, when I imitate God, I'm honoring him, right? So when I set the table, does it get more mundane than that, right? If I have the utensils straight and the napkin orderly, I'm imitating God in his orderliness and his care for details. Um, if I'm seasoning food well, I'm imitating God who has created flavor and wants things like that to be enjoyed, right? So by, by thinking through, I'm imitating God right now, I think has helped me take some of the mundane stuff and help it actually feel a bit more worshipful. Um, but when frustration and discouragement cloud your view, which is like almost every day, um, I think that's where believing and knowing the promises of God, having friends in your life who really are encouraging to you and strengthening you, and uh, not just telling you, hey, you can do it, but hey, God is worth trusting and uh, kind of gospel promises. Those are a few things that, that help me. What would you guys say in that? That's a great question. Um, I guess for me, maybe being with people outside of my vein of life, which is young 30s, little kids, mm. on the kind of upslope of your career, um, stressed with just family life, 
So me and my wife love to hang out with older folks because they're just not stressed about any of that. And they're like, it's, it's not that big a deal. Your kid's going to be fine. He'll figure out how to pee in the toilet. Like, <laughs> so hanging out with people just that are outside of my perspective to give me yeah. perspective that I don't have. And then hanging out with little people who don't have my perspective. And Jesus says a lot about kids and being like little children and just the sweet joy they find in little things in life. So whether it's age and wisdom perspective or lack of age and just a lack of perspective of the brokenness in the world and enjoying the sweetness, those things kind of get me out of rut sometimes and help me in my life. So, I, Another thing, too, that I've been embracing is, is to be honest with God about that frustration and discouragement. I think sometimes we feel like we got to paint this sort of happy, clappy lacquer of that's just phony and it's not real and God invites us so much of the psalm is lament and is expressing pain because this doesn't feel like how things are supposed to be and if we're going to have a real relationship with God we have to be willing to vent our frustration in prayer and um, express our discouragement to God in prayer and find that maybe by his spirit he actually may encourage us next question Scripture seems to point to our current world getting progressively evil as we await the return of Christ. If true, how do we live as believers with our own nation in a state of expedited collapse? Seth. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of assumptions there. Yeah. Yeah, I think, so first of all, I'm, when when I hear these type of questions, I think, uh, sometimes it's we as Christians want to really put a lot of stock into how things are worse now than they ever have been. Hmm. And I think about how even, uh, so like right now, and we're going through Acts in Antioch, like the level of sexual morality there, we don't even come close to what things were like in first century Greek culture, especially in the more uh, cosmopolitan areas. And so I think that... Uh, I'm not convinced that scripture points to our world getting progressively evil. Um, I believe that uh, the Bible in a variety of places talks about in the last days there's going to be scoffers, there's going to be all these bad things, but I think that um, the way the New Testament talks about last days is it's a time that began as soon as Christ was risen, that like from the time that Christ is risen until the time Christ returns, we have been living in a sense in the last days. And so while America might seem to be getting progressively more evil, um, other parts of the world, like especially the um, Latin South, the church is exploding and there's revival and there's this great outbreak in things. And so, um, and a lot of it too is, uh, so that doesn't really change like what do we do? Because the world is evil, there's, there's pockets of good, there's pockets of evil. And I think depending on our media-saturated world, things might seem to be more evil than they are, but I think now we just see it more. It's always been there, but now it's um, on our screens constantly. Uh, But I think this being a distinct witness, how do we live as believers when our own nation is in a state of expedited collapse? Um, Whether we are or aren't in a state of expedited collapse, I think us being a a holy witness to the resurrection of Jesus, kind of what Rax is talking about, is uh, is deal. We're distinct people. Who are called to be light to the nations, uh, who are pointing to what it looks like to live under the reign of God and not under the reign of anything else. And I think that, um, I think Watt brought it up earlier, is that looks like running away from sin, that looks like um, investing in the church, it looks like 
being messy um, and admitting that we're still in progress. It means being in relationship with non-Christians. It means, uh, so, so let me say this, uh, the fact whether what our world is doing or not doing, we should always live as though Christ is going to come like a thief in the night, mm. and we should always seek to invest and make disciples, and we should always seek to serve Jesus before we serve anything else. And so, depending on where you're at in the world, depending on the people you hang out with, it may seem like the world is trending up or like the world is trending down. Mm. And uh, but that's kind of relative based on our experience. Yeah. I think we'll do two more questions. Uh, next one. The Bible. <laughs> fast fingers here. The Bible contains several stories of women having a large impact upon the church, leadership and otherwise, yet there are passages that seem to contradict the importance of women as leaders in the church. Are these passages simply limited to the culture slash context of the specific period slash church, or are those relevant to churches in general? Uh, that's actually a really good question. And um, great question. yeah, I, I would probably take slight issue with just the phrasing of uh, that seem to contradict the importance of women as leaders in the church. I don't think that is the intention of any of the places that describe the roles of men and women in the church is to say men are more important, women are less important. Um, as much as it is to say men and women are equal before God and have different roles to play, and here's the, what the expectations and limitations on those roles would be. And so in particular, uh, there's a passage in 1 Timothy 2, if you uh, want to look at it, First Timothy chapter 2. Um, and in that particular passage, uh, yes. In that particular passage, um, the Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy, who's a church leader, and he's talking about life in the church. Um, and he says in verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. And if you actually look later on in the same book, in 1 Timothy 5, Paul uses that same phrase, teach or have authority, to describe the role of elders. And so uh, the way we interpret this here at Redemption is to say that every leadership opportunity uh, is available to both men and women in the church with the single exception of pastor-elder because of that connection of I don't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority. He's basically saying, I don't permit a woman to have elder level authority in the church. And then you go, okay, last part of this question, is that because of the cultural context? Okay, Timothy was in Ephesus. Maybe that's just kind of, you know, it was a more patriarchal society. Maybe they did it that way. Interestingly, Paul defends this or explains it in the next verse by saying, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And he he, he doesn't go back to the cultural situation. He goes back to creation and says because of God's design in uh, placing uh, uh, leadership in the, in the particular kind of realm of the, the husband in that case, um, God is doing the same thing in the church. So it's a really important question and, um, and I wanna just be absolutely clear that we believe that every opportunity for leadership in the church is available to both men and women with that singular exception of pastor or elder. So. All right, last question. Is there eternal life with God after suicide? Mm. My heart breaks just for that question, but why don't you take that, Josh? Uh, eternal life is offered to any who believe upon Jesus for the forgiveness of sins uh, with no exceptions. The Bible doesn't say unless they 
follow up with this sort of action or this sort of action. So if you've put your faith in Jesus or if you know someone who put their faith and their trust in Jesus and uh, they took their own life, uh, you can have hope that they're with Jesus now for eternity. Uh, you can also be real and say what they did was wrong and it's one of the sins that Jesus paid for for them knowing that uh, that action they were going to take. So it's just a, there's hope and there's the reality that you don't overlook what they did. It's painful and it, it kind of leaves behind the pain for the people here to deal with. So it's, 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 it's just a sad kind of selfish, painful situation, but there's absolutely hope for people who have committed suicide. Um, within my own family, this has happened, so uh, absolutely, absolutely. If you trust Jesus, you're sealed. The Holy Spirit seals you, never let you go, and you're with Jesus forever, so that's my answer. Amen. Yeah. If, if you receive eternal life, not on the basis of works, there's no way you can lose eternal life on the basis of works either. I think the way you get it is the way you keep it, and it's by the grace of God, and there's no other way. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you all for your questions, and I obviously a very limited number that we were able to get to, but uh, covered a lot of different ground, and that was fun, so thank you for, thanks for being here. Um, thank you for, oh, thank you. Um, we're going to close our time uh, with a benediction, and so if you're able to, please stand. And this benediction comes from Romans chapter 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Love you guys. We'll be up front if you want to talk. Prayer team will be here if you want to pray. Have a great week. See ya.